Amen. Please remain standing and hear the words of our God as we return to the Gospel of John. I'll be reading from chapter 4, the first 26 verses. And these are the words of God. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria came... I'm sorry, then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, it, um, you, would have asked him, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband, in that you spoke, in that you spoke truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, Believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we, we know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. That's the reading of God's word. Let's ask his blessing now. Heavenly Father, gracious God, you have given us this word, these stories of Jesus, inspired by your Holy Spirit for our edification. Open our eyes and hearts to all that this gospel is proclaiming. Enlighten and strengthen our minds and our love for you in the preaching of your word. For we ask it in the powerful name of Jesus, our Messiah and Lord. Amen. Amen. Seated. Well, one of the things I hope that you're seeing as we go through the Gospel of John, I think we're learning over and over again with all of these stories, with all of these incidents, to look far more carefully at the scenes that, Jesus, that John is giving to us about Jesus. We saw this very clearly in the water, wine incident at Cana, there was much more going on than simply the miraculous story of Jesus turning water into wine. We saw this in the conversation with Nicodemus, who Nicodemus represents, and the, and the discussion about having to be born again or born anew. 
They're straightforward stories all by themselves, but there are double meanings and multiple layers, Old Testament symbol allusions, and hints at prophecies that, with a little more study, unpack far more than John is telling us about Jesus. Remember, at the end of the, of the gospel, in chapter 20, um, John writes, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Now, he says that, I, that I've shown you these signs, and I, I didn't show you all the signs. I, if I had shown you all the signs, I don't think all the books of the world could have, could have, could have filled them, or uh, could, um, th- there would be too many for the whole world, or something like that, he says. But he, but he says that there, there, are too, there are too many signs, too many stories. Around the signs are these stories as well that give us signs. Um, how many of you have a hard time understanding the book of Revelation? Okay. So one of the things about the book of Revelation, it says at the very beginning of the book that the book of Revelation is to be re- read in symbol language. It's a particular kind of uh, understanding in order to understand. You have to understand how John is writing. The gospel of John, written by the same author, is kind of a precursor. It's kind of like remedial revelation. Um, you, you've got to see what John is doing through the Gospel of John, and that's going to help you understand that you, you need to see all of the Old Testament, all of the allusions, all of the illustrations, all of the things that are being echoed or turned on its head in different ways in order to truly understand all that's there. Now, that's not to say that you can't understand um, the, go- the Gospel of John in, in, in its simplicity, in its um, children's Bible stories uh, method as well. There, there is a, a meaning that's just right on the top, and it's true. Um, Jesus did turn water into wine at a wedding. That's true. Um, J- Jesus did say, um, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. And, he, and it says, and it was pointing to his body, and that's true. But as we've seen, there are, many more, there are many more things to learn and gather from that to understand that Jesus is the Messiah and that he is the Son of God, that's, and, and, and all of the implications of that. So here's the short story. Here's the the Bible story. The short story is that Jesus was traveling and stopped in Samaria to rest. At at a well, he spoke with a woman asking her for a drink. He went on to tell her that if she knew who he was, she would have asked and he could give her living water, water overflowing with eternal life. And the woman asked for that water and said, Jesus, oh, I'm sorry, she asked for that water. And then Jesus said for her to go and get her husband. Well, he already knew that she had five husbands previously, and the man she was living with now was not her husband. The woman was amazed that Jesus knew this and claimed he was a prophet. She then had questions about the differences that her people and Jesus' people, the Jews, had about worship. And Jesus answered that a time was coming when all those differences would be put aside. The Father was seeking those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Suspiciously, the woman said that that when Messiah came, he would explain everything. And then Jesus told her that he was the Messiah. So, what we have here is a simple story. But as I mentioned, we've already talked about water, the temple, weddings. And John is not done with those topics here at all. First of all, we have a woman, we are told. A woman at a well. Something about this meeting seemed quite strange to Jesus' disciples when they returned. If you you look further down in the passage, it says in verse 27, And at this point his disciples came, and they marveled that he talked with a woman. Yet no one said, What do do you seek, or why are you talking with her? They, They were amazed that he was talking with this woman. 
Now, it may have been that Jesus was, the reason that they would have been so surprised may have been that Jesus was speaking with a woman and that she was a Samaritan. We're told that um, she herself was, was surprised because she said, um, it's, you, usually you Jews don't speak to women, you don't speak to Samaritans, you don't spend any, you, you don't address Samaritans at all. But there are many times that Jesus um, speaks to other women and even to foreign women at, at other times. Yet at this scene in particularly, we're told that the disciples marveled. They see something here. What do they see? What, what is John pointing us to? Well, remember, a servant of Abraham goes to a foreign city, and while at a well, he finds a woman who, who ends up becoming Isaac's wife in Genesis 24. Jacob is fleeing from Esau into a foreign land and comes to a well where he meets, meets Rachel, whom he marries, Genesis 29. Moses protects Jethro's daughters at a well and ends up marrying one of those foreign daughters, Exodus 2. So in biblical literature, when a man meets a foreign woman at a well, you should hear wedding bells on the horizon. When a woman, when a man meets a foreign woman at a well, a wedding is on its way. This is this comes clear in, in over. We, now and, and then now let's just remember this also. In just chapter chapter two, we see Jesus at a wedding in Cana, and and a declaration of sorts that Jesus is the bridegroom, a, a declaration that he's the one who's who's uh, who's providing all of the. Um, um, all of the wine, as the bridegroom is supposed to be. It's pointing to that. We also saw, saw John's testimony, where John said that um, he is like the friend of the bridegroom, and Jesus is the groom. So there's all this wedding language going on, going on, and then you waltz into this story, and you have a man with a foreign woman at a well. A wedding is about to take place. It, it might have been, the disciples might have been scratching their heads going, is he going to marry her? What's going on here? So we have a woman, but not just a woman. We also we have a Samaritan woman, a foreign woman. And the enmity between the Jews and the Samaritans went back centuries. And their neighboring, their neighboring areas. But this, this fight, this animosity, this hatred, this religious and ethnic hatred of one another really goes back centuries. After the Assyrians conquered the ten tribes of the north, in, of, northern, of the northern kingdom, those ten tribes, in 722 BC, they left a small number of Jews there um, to, to still care for the land. But then over time, they brought in many other, uh, others from other nations that they had conquered to take care of the land as well. The intermarrying resulted in this mixed breed that eventually became known as the Samaritans. They practiced a syncretistic religion using only the Pentateuch, Pentateuch so they, they took the old five books of Moses and they, used the, they believed that those were holy writings, but then they also followed all kinds of other um, religious systems that they tied into that. And in, including building a temple um, on Mount Gerizim, which then was destroyed by a Jewish king in 128 BC. Probably just a little bit before Jesus' time also, um, historians say that there, was a, um, there, there were Samaritans who went into the temple and threw a whole bunch of, of old human bones into the temple, which would have desecrated the temple, declaring the temple to be unclean. There was, a, there was this back and forth um, hatred and enmity between the Samaritans and the Jews. So who is this Samaritan woman? Well, she, has, she herself 
has had a rough life. She's lost, um, she's lost five different husbands. We're not told whether all five died, but that would seem strange. Um, um, that might have happened, but more likely she was divorced several times, um, which, and she would have been divorced um, more times than, than would have been uh, technically allowed by the, the details of the law and the other writings of the scriptures. Uh, not the scriptures, but the other writings of, of, the, uh, of the Jewish writings. Um, and, and so, so she's, she's despised in some way. Um, and, and she is now with someone who's not her husband. So she's had five husbands. Well, why five husbands? Why, what's important about that? Remember, we have, we have the story of, of uh, Israel being taken, the ten tribes being taken away, and then these other nations being brought in. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to 2 Kings. 2 Kings 17. And here is the account of that. 2 Kings 17, verse 24. Then the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and from Servaphaim, five different nation states, uh, nations in their own right, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the children of Israel, and they took possession of Samaria and dwelt in its cities. And it was so at the beginning of their dwelling there that they did not fear the Lord. Therefore the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. So they spoke to the king of Assyria, saying, The nations whom you have removed and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the rituals of the God of the land. Therefore he has sent lions among them, and indeed they are killing, because they do not know the rituals of the God of the land. Then the king of Assyria commanded, saying, Send there one of the priests whom you brought from there. Let him go and dwell there, and teach, let him teach them the rituals of the God of the land." Then one of the priests who they had carried away from Samaria came and dwelt in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. However, every nation continued to make gods of its own and put them in the shrines on the high places, which the Samaritans had made every nation in the cities where they dwelt. And it goes on, describes them establishing these other Baals that are, uh, are worshipped, these other gods that they worshipped. So you have to, in, 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 they, have these, they have these different gods, these different Baals that they're worshiping, along with the, the Hebrew God, because he's the God of the land, and he's going to help them not be killed by the lions. But they're not turning away from the false gods. They're just kind of adding, they're adding Jehovah, they're adding Yahweh to their collection of gods, their Baals. Now, um, it, there's, there are two main Hebrew words that are translated husband in the Old Testament. One of them is Ish, and the other one is Baal, the same word that is used um, for the gods. So Baal is, can be translated both time, uh, in different ways as gods or husband, depending on the, situ, uh, d depending on the, uh, uh, the place that you're in. So th th there's just that idea in the Hebrew or Aramaic to, to, in, in, to begin with. And then, then you have this issue of the five, the, the five nations who bring in their gods. Josephus, a historian um, of the first century, wrote and, and described Samaria as, as being known as the land of the five Baals. Samaria is known as the land of the five Baals. This woman has had five husbands, and the one she has now is not her own. 
Okay, now in addition, we should notice the stark difference in these two stories that are laid against each other. We have the story of Nicodemus and then the story of the Samaritan woman. And, and it's, hard to, it's hard to find something more different than these two individuals. Um, we have Nicodemus, the uber-moral lawkeeper, the uber-moral Jew, and then we have this Samaritan woman divorced far too many times. He is a ruler of the Jews. She is an outcast, even among the Samaritans. She most likely is coming all by herself at, at the sixth hour, which would be noon. She's coming to the sixth hour when you don't go and get water. You go and get water early in the morning or in the evening when it's not so hot. But she's come all by herself. Every indication is that she is in some, in some ways destitute and, and uh, you know, not, not in fellowship, even with her own people, the, the Samaritans. He was a man, and she is a woman. He came by night, and Jesus sought her out at noon. So if Nicodemus represented the Jews and all of their moral-keeping law in order to earn their way before heaven, this unnamed woman represents the Gentiles and all the multiple gods that the Gentiles have worshipped. The only thing that they have in common is that neither understand what Jesus is saying to them, at least at first. Both times they are not listening beyond just the top of the story as, as Jesus speaks to them, and, and are often are, they're confused and confounded by the kinds of things that Jesus says. And so Jesus corrects the, her syncretism. He says in, in verse 22, if you go back to, to John now, <clears throat> she says in verse 20, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to wor worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. And so he corrects her. The, the worship that you had created there on Mount Gerizim, it's not just talking to the woman. She didn't create that worship. But to the Gentile nations. To the Gentile nations. This, this false worship that you're doing is incorrect, and the worship that God commanded in Jerusalem is correct. Salvation is going to come from the Jews. Look there. And yet, they're both mistaken. Nicodemus is mistaken in the way he understands the, the worship in Jerusalem, and so does the woman. Um, all, and for the Jews, they had the truth, but they did not have the spirit. So they had the truth, they had the understanding, they had the right answers, but they didn't have the spirit. That's why Jesus would have to say to Nicodemus um, in verses 5 through 8 of chapter 3, Jesus answered, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind, the spirit, the pneuma, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. You have the truth. You understand, the, you, you have the law right before you, but you don't have the spirit. That's what Jesus was saying to Nicodemus. To the woman at the well, he was saying the, the false worship of the Gentiles is incorrect. The worship of the Jews, that, that which God had given us, given you, that is the correct answer. That is how we are to approach God. But something else is, is important, not just the law, not just the truth, but the spirit must be present as well. So Jesus, though, um, so this, this is how the, um, the unbelieving heart misunderstands the word of Jesus, whether or not it's, whether it's Nicodemus or whether it's the woman at the well. But Jesus knows the reason, there's, there's a main reason that she doesn't understand. 
There's a main reason that it's her responsibility that she doesn't understand. And so he addresses that. Go and get your husband. There's, there's the real issue at hand. Go and get your husband and come here. This calls out her personal problem and the problem of the Gentile Baals. This calls out the problem of our Baals. What causes us, what causes us not to hear and not to listen to Jesus? What causes us to be deaf or stupid to the words of Jesus, to take those words and twist the meaning? What is it that makes him appear to us to be irrelevant or to believe that we need to add to him a number of other religious principles or philosophies in order for there to be true, um, true belief or true salvation? Well, first and foremost, the thing that causes us to turn away from the, from the straight teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ is not that he is hard to understand. It is our sin that dulls our senses. It is our sin that keeps us dead to understanding, that keeps us from wanting to understand, from wanting to obey, from wanting to submit. It is our sin. Jesus says, go, call your husband, and come here. And she, in essence, repents at that very moment. I have no husband. Let me come clean with you. We have no idea whether or not the community knew that she was, um, that this, this man was married to her or not, but she comes clean with Jesus. I have no husband. And she tur- he turns to her, and I, I, don't think, I don't think he tries to take it even deeper. I, I, I think he says, let me reveal, I'm going to show you what I know about you, what I already know about your heart. And so he addresses her in that way. So what are our bales? What keeps us from understanding, listening, obeying, submitting to, believing, being attentive to what Jesus says to us? What causes us to want to twist the meaning make it, and put our own definition upon words? It's our unwillingness to let go of the thing that we are most attached to, of the husband that we are attached to instead, the, the husband, the bail that we're attached to instead. Until we are willing to get rid of that bail, Jesus makes no sense. Jesus makes no sense. And so we have a woman, we have a Samaritan woman, and then we have this description of something called living water. And again, when Jesus says living water, Old Testament illusions abound. Running water, you, oftentimes in the Old Testament, you, we have descriptions of running water. The word, again, the Hebrew word, is actually living water. And living water was required, or running water was required in ceremonial washings for impurities. In Numbers 19, you can look there later. While they wandered in the wilderness, Jesus was that rock that provided a fountain of water, providing for the thirst that they could not quench. That's in Exodus 17, which Paul makes very clear in 1 Corinthians 10. God is the spring of living water, which Israel had forsaken. Listen to Jeremiah 2. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. They're over here playing in the dirty water when I've offered them living water, clean and refreshing. Jeremiah 2. In Psalm 36, 9, God is described as the fountain of living waters. 
Isaiah 44.3 tells us of the coming day of salvation with, I will pour out water on the thirsty land. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring. And so there we see right away that the living water being poured out is an allusion itself to the outpouring of the spirit. This outpouring of water is of living water is tied to the outpouring of the spirit. Ezekiel connects the sprinkling of cleansing water with the giving of the Spirit as well. Listen to Ezekiel 36. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. And so the church takes takes this water spirit illusions and brings up a child of the covenant and pours water upon her, declaring that the spirit has been promised to her. And in that declaration, we promise, believing in the faithfulness of God, that God will bring that one up in the covenant community with us and in that family with us. And we believe that, so we believe in God's promises. We believe in them pointing back to the Old, uh, Old Testament references. We do that when we, um, when we baptize somebody on a profession of faith as well. The same thing is, is being promised and declared. God has saved this one in the cleansing waters. He didn't need a bath. He needed to be cleaned on the inside by the work of the Holy Spirit, granting him new life. And so in either of those, in, in baptism, the declaration of the promise of God's Spirit is, is, and, and the change, the transformational change in cleansing is being declared, all from the, the illusions of the Old Testament. Jesus says uh, to the woman that he has this living water for her, and it's hers for the asking. Um, look at verse 10. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And then 13 and 14. Uh, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, that is the water of the well. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become, a, become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. It's water that in essence grows and grows and grows up into eternal and everlasting life. More and more and more blessing is to come. It's not a one-time, there is a one-time moment event, and then there's also this ongoing, overflowing, running, living water that flows and grows and sends deeper and deeper. Okay, so there's a lot in this story. We have a woman, we have a Samaritan woman, we have a woman who's at a well, we have a woman who has been married to five bales and has now been offered living water to be made clean and be brought into um, everlasting life. But there's even more to contemplate. In Ezekiel, we have an extended prophecy of a new temple to be built. That's the last nine chapters of Ezekiel, from Ezekiel, Ezekiel 40 to 48, is this long extended description of a temple that has never been built. A temple that's never been built, according to all the, all the instructions and the measurements and all of that, in that kind of literal way. Jesus said, though, that he was the new temple. In John 2.19, he says, destroy this temple. There was Herod's temple that had been rebuilt. There was the temple that Ezra and Nehemiah began to, to, to be rebuilt. There was, there was other wars that took place, and then finally Herod had begun to build this great temple. But he wasn't following the plan. 
That, that, that temple is not built at all like Ezekiel's plan. Jesus says, destroy this one, and I will, and, and I will raise it up again in three days. And we're told in chap chapter 2, when he said that, he's speaking of his own body. He is that temple. He is that temple of the Holy Spirit. But, so Jesus says that. Now, in Ezekiel 47, if you'll, if you'll bear with me, turn to, to another passage here, to Ezekiel 47... We have more allusions here of living water. And it's living water that is flowing from a temple. And keep in mind, Jesus has said he is that new temple. And in for, listen to now, what, what, is this, what happens to this temple? Chapter 47. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and there was water flowing from under the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the front of the temple faced east. The water was flowing from under the right side of the temple, south of the altar. He brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gateway that faces east, and there was water running out on the right side. And when the man went out to the east with the line in his hand, he measured 1,000 cubits, and he brought me through the waters, and the waters came up to my ankles. Again, he measured 1,000 and brought me through the waters, and now the water came up to my knees." Again, he measured 1,000 and brought me through. The water came up to my waist. And again, he measured 1,000. And it was a river that I could not cross, for the water was too deep. Water in which one must swim, a river that could not be crossed. He said to me, son of man, have you seen this? Then he brought me back, brought me and returned me to the bank of the river. And when I returned there along the bank of the river were very many trees on one side and the other. And then he said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region, goes down into the valley, and enters the sea. When it reaches the sea, its waters are healed. Now, there's all kinds of things to pull out from there. But one of the things I want you to just notice is this promise of water flowing out from the side of the temple that flows and grows deeper and deeper and deeper. And its banks are growing these trees that provide healing to all of the waters and, 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 the, and the sea itself is, uh, to the nations, uh, there's, a, there's a promise the nations are going to be healed. And, and, then, and then alongside the, um, the water, we have the waters um, being healed themselves as well. John is going to use this in his picture of the New Jerusalem at the end of the book of Revelation as well. Now, there's another, there's another uh, prophecy real similar in, in, in Zechariah 14. It says, this is in Zechariah 14, and in that day... It shall be that living waters shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and half of them toward the western sea. In both summer and winter it shall occur, and the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day it shall be the Lord is one and his name one. But just before that, in two chapters earlier in Zechariah 12, hang with me, we find out when that day is going to take place. That day, according to Zechariah 12.10, is described in this way. And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Then they will look on me whom they have pierced. All right. So why this fly through all these scripture verses? Let's see if we can put these things together for a moment. When Jesus died on the cross... They pierced his side with a spear, and John will record that out and blood and water came out from his side. Blood and water came out from his side, and then he says, as the scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. 
And so it was, it was already prophesied that, that Jesus would be pierced. But far more than just Jesus being pierced was being prophesied. Far more is being declared if one has eyes to see, if one takes the time to see all of these things coming together. And so um, we have a woman at a well. We have a Samaritan. We have five bales. We have the offering of living water. We have a Gentile who is now being betrothed. Jesus is going to cleanse the Gentiles. And with living water, he's going to do so, flowing from the side of the new temple by his death on the cross. In chapter 2, um, in chapter, chapter 2 and 3, uh, chap, chapter 3, where he's being addressed by, um, uh, about, uh, John, by John the Baptist, or, sorry, yeah, by, by John the Baptist, we have the picture of him being the bridegroom who is coming for the Jews. And in chapter 4, we have him as the picture of the one who is coming to the Gentiles, betrothed to the Gentiles. So the story continues beyond this section. We'll look at it next time. The story continues with the conversion of this poor woman and her testimony to her town about the Messiah who has come. You can look especially here at verse 42 of chapter 4. Then they said to the woman, the, the Samaritans, Now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. She and turns out to be a great evangelist as well. So this woman goes and tells the city. They come and see Jesus. They hear his teachings, and they come to Christ. Samaritans are now coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ right there in John chapter 4. Well, what do all these images then together point to? An old world made new, a dead woman made alive, a bride that is made up of Jew and Gentile alike, reconciling all men together and bringing an end to the enmity between God and all men, along with all the nations coming together, worshiping <coughs> together by means of the truth, but by means of the spirit and the truth, able to worship God in spirit and in truth. Jews had the truth but not the spirit. Worship would not be um, at either mountains anymore, but at the mountain of spirit and truth in the Lord Jesus. Now, we are somewhere along the way in this river of life that is flowing out to all the nations and healing all the waters. Jesus comes here, Emmanuel. This is Advent, the, the, the beginning of the celebration of the incarnation of Jesus coming to this earth to bring reconciliation between all mankind and God and between all mankind with one another as well. A Jew is willing to sit at a well with a, with a foreign, unclean woman and in essence become betrothed to her. That is that which is clean, making that which is unclean, clean. Jesus has come to make anyone and everyone clean with the rivers of living water that are offered. And we, downstream from this 2,000 years, are a part of, this river, uh, part of these rivers of living water that are going forth to all of the nations to heal all the nations, to bring all of the unclean water and make it all clean. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, and he makes that which is unclean clean with the cleansing water of baptism, the spilling of his blood, the outpouring of his spirit, water and blood flowing from his side. St. Augustine said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. And that is what this Samaritan woman found out when Jesus said to her, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Father, we thirst. 
we are a people who are restless for the spirit and for truth. And we play in mud puddles, not believing the promise of a day at the beach. We try to fill that void with the bales of immediate pleasure and gratification when there is an ocean of grace and life offered to us, eternal life, living waters. Open eyes here even this morning. Open our eyes to see this grace, this abounding work of the Lord Jesus Christ in us and through us and all around our land. Let that living water flow. Let that living water, which is the Holy Spirit, that is Jesus Christ our Lord and his Spirit in the preaching of his word even, let those who hear it come to faith. Let that be the greatest Christmas gift they ever received. We pray these things in the strong name of Jesus, and amen.